is the sound of a Kaduria Sufi Jikr in Cape Town, South Africa. And if you've listened to my lectures on Islam, you might remember what a Sufi Jikr is. This is historian explaining. A historian tells you why everything you know is wrong. These lectures are on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, and other platforms. If you have topics or questions you'd like to hear about, please comment or email me at historiansplaining at gmail.com. And if you can contribute anything to keep them coming, please go to my Patreon page. The link will be in the description. So last time I spoke about the creation of consolidated, powerful royal states in Spain and Portugal in the 14 and 1500s, and a little bit about what eventually became of them after 1600. Well, these same two countries are also the ones you might know who first launched the centuries-long European project of overseas exploration, colonization, and conquest. And I'm going to talk about that today, beginning first with Portugal, because that's really where this process first started, was Portugal. And it started, like so many of these historical developments that I've talked about, it started in a really unexpected and unpredictable way. It was largely an accidental development. And the people who launched it actually did not have the sort of mentality that we might expect today. They were not uh, visionaries of progress or even really of discovery, per se. Those things were mainly accidental. Their goal was actually to maintain certain trading and diplomatic relationships that had already existed before and that were challenged and put in, under threat mainly by the advance of the Ottoman Turks and most importantly the Turks' conquest of Constantinople in 1453. So you might remember when I talked about the Middle Ages, uh, Constantinople was both the main window and gateway for Europeans to trade and travel and communicate with the rest of Eurasia, including the Islamic world, and uh, South Asia and East Asia. It also was the main bulwark uh, protecting Europe from the growing power of these Islamic states. So when the Ottoman Turks began uh, conquering large parts of the Byzantine Empire and eventually Constantinople, uh, this really threatened to possibly cut Europe off completely from their sources of Asian goods, uh, like spices, silks, porcelain, and so forth. It also uh, threatened the possibility that if this trade continued, it would enrich and empower the Ottoman Empire, which could then further threaten uh, conquests farther west into Europe. So the Ottomans really presented uh, a huge dilemma to all of Europe. And it just so happened that first Portugal 
and then in a different way, Spain, capitalized on this crisis, and in doing so, mainly hoped to maintain and restore the relationships that they'd already known before, but to do so in a way that simply circumvented Constantinople. And they also hoped to continue on the great crusading project, which had fallen into the background after about 1300, but which in their hearts and minds, Europeans still remained very much attached to. So the initial uh, wave of European overseas colonization and conquest really began as a continuation of the commitments, the hopes, the aspirations of the medieval crusades. Okay, they did not begin as a sort of you know, scientific, empirical, utilitarian project to create new sources of wealth. It was more about continuing what they had already known, conserving what they had already known. Okay, so I'm going to talk some about Portugal first. So Portugal really became the first maritime empire created by Christians or Europeans outside the Mediterranean. So there had already been maritime empires like Genoa, Barcelona, and most particularly Venice uh, in the Mediterranean basin. That was something that had, you know, the technologies, the trade routes had deep roots going back to the Romans or arguably even earlier to the ancient world. The Portuguese were as I said last time, a fairly small, isolated kingdom on the western coast of Iberia that formed out of the small crusader states. Okay, states organized by mainly by Christian knights taking territory in a piecemeal way from the Muslim Moors who ruled most of Iberia in the High Middle Ages. Portugal was the first to endeavor to circumvent trade with the Muslims, okay? They, they still saw themselves in the 13 and 1400s as a crusader state. Many of their leaders, administrators, military commanders came out of the surviving crusader uh, orders, like the Order of Christ and the Order of Aviz. And... The last thing that they wanted to do was enrich their Islamic opponents. And yet that's what happened whenever Europeans, including Portuguese subjects, went and traded for gold, salt, and other goods in North Africa. Okay, so the Portuguese were the first to look for a way to establish their own trading connections to acquire the goods they wanted, not only from Asia, but first before that from Africa, okay, especially gold, which came mainly from West Africa through trade caravan routes up the Sahara and eventually to the Islamic cities in North Africa. So once the Portuguese had completed their reconquest, as they saw it, of the entire western seaboard of Iberia and basically had no further territory to take back from the Muslims, uh, they 
turned their attention across the sea to North Africa and the African continent. In 1415, the Portuguese crown, at the insistence of the princes and some other powerful uh, advisors and courtiers at the Portuguese court, launched a massive seaborne invasion of the city of Ceuta on the northern coast of Morocco. Ceuta was a port city that was a major outlet for trade in African goods, especially gold. So the hope of the Portuguese court was that they could capture Ceuta and so redirect this trade in gold and salt and other goods into their own hands and out of uh, Moorish Islamic hands. The capture of Ceuta was successful, although at enormous cost. Okay, uh, there was tremendous uh, loss of life. There was, uh, it was enormously expensive uh, launching this seaborne operation. And uh, the Moorish states in Morocco didn't simply sit back and accept the capture of Ceuta. They fought back in any ways that they could. Uh, there were further expeditions uh, and battles along the coast of North Africa. And uh, one of the princes of the Portuguese royal family was captured in one of these later battles. The Moors tried to trade him in return for giving Ceuta back to them. Uh, the Portuguese refused this trade and the prince ended up uh, dying in prison. So the Portuguese really, you know, they sustained heavy losses, both material and symbolic as the price for capturing and holding uh, Ceuta. So in these ways, although it was a successful attack, it ended up not being an auspicious start to this Portuguese project of continuing the reconquest across the sea into Africa. Two other important facts about Ceuta. One is that uh, the goal, the hope of the Portuguese to redirect trade, African trade, directly into their own hands ended up failing because, not surprisingly, the Moors simply redirected that trade in African goods into other ports that they still held. And so very little of that wealth ended up getting into Portuguese channels. Okay. Finally, another important fact to note about Ceuta and the capture of Ceuta in 1415 is the fact that, as I said, the princes participated, and one of them was the younger, uh, third son of King John I, who was named Henry, or Enrique in Portuguese. Uh, so he was called by, by his title uh, Dom Enrique, or Prince Henry. And he has later come to be called Prince Henry the Navigator. That is not what he was called at the time or in his life, but that's the title that's sort of been assigned to him by history. And Prince Henry was a great enthusiast for this expedition to Ceuta and for the greater hope, the greater scheme of extending the reconquests further east into North Africa. He took part in the capture of Ceuta, but played ended up playing only a very minor role in a sort of minor peripheral engagement. He missed out on participating in the major action against the city, and he was very disappointed by this. 
he felt that he had sort of failed to make his mark and show his valor as a fighter. And this is part of why he remained very passionate about continuing the Portuguese conquests into North Africa. Henry, like the other princes, was the son, as I said, of King John I of Portugal and his wife, the English princess Philippa of Lancaster. Now, sometimes in retrospect, historians, especially British historians, have liked to say, aha, you see, he was half English. Uh, this is why he ended up becoming so interested in navigation and seafaring. Uh, because England is a seafaring country. Well, this is not apparently true. I mean, that was just not a factor. Uh, you know, England at this time was not really a seafaring country yet. However, his upbringing and education by his mother, Philippa, was significant. Not so much because it had anything to do with seafaring, but because she was descended from English crusading heroes, like uh, Richard the Lionheart and others. And he was largely raised on stories of the Crusaders and their, their chivalry and, and their heroism. Also, on his father's side, you remember his father, John I, was originally the commander of the Order of Aviz, the most important uh, crusading chivalric order in Portugal. So from both sides he looked back to crusading forebears of one sort or another. And he, Prince Henry, really wanted to see himself as a latter-day crusader who would take up the cause of recapturing Jerusalem. And he saw the attack on Ceuta and the subsequent expeditions to other cities like Tangier. He saw them as the beginning stages of a project to to reconquer eastward across North Africa and eventually reach the Holy Land and Jerusalem. Okay. So, in a sense, partly as a kind of consolation prize for his marginal role at Ceuta and his frustration with the expense and difficulty and slowness of this campaign into North Africa, the king appointed Dom Enrique to be the commander of the Order of Christ, which was another important crusading order in Portugal, which was the successor of the Knights Templar. And you might remember the Knights Templar were uh, suppressed and destroyed in the 1300s, but Portugal is one of those realms where the crown simply uh, dissolved the Templars and then transferred their money, their property, their members even into another order that simply continued on the Templar tradition just under a different name. So as commander of the Order of Christ, Enrique became, in a sense, the, the successor, the, the standard bearer of the Templar legacy. He also was appointed after his brother became king. He was appointed as governor of the Algarve. And the Algarve is the southernmost region on the, the southern coast of Portugal. It faces towards North Africa and towards the Atlantic. And once he was in place as governor of the Algarve, the crown then granted to him the royal share of all profits from overseas trade. 
Okay, so clearly the crown was in some way sympathetic to Enrique's vision and his aspirations for launching new crusades into North Africa. And the Algarve was the natural place to organize and launch such missions and trade between uh, the homeland and overseas territories and foreign lands would be a way to fund this project. So they, they may have been sympathetic, but in a, in a sense, they were also kind of foisting the job off onto Prince Henry uh, for him to find ways to raise, raise the funds and launch the expeditions. Enrique took over a small abandoned village on the coast of Algarve, which was mostly a fairly poor fishing region, arguably the most isolated corner of this isolated kingdom of Portugal. It was largely a fishing region uh, of small towns and villages, but Henry took over a, an abandoned village called Tersanabal and basically rebuilt it and refurbished it as a royal residence and in some sense as a kind of headquarters for his own project of overseas trade and crusading. Tersanabal has been, in a sense, romanticized and exaggerated through the years. Sometimes people like to think of it as this sort of grand, almost university of seafaring where the great mariners and cartographers and astronomers were brought together and an observatory was built and so forth. It seems from archaeology that this is not true. It was, it was just a royal residence where sometimes uh, the prince's court, his, his officials, his treasurers, and occasionally cartographers were brought and where the prince dispensed patronage. But overseas missions were mainly launched from cities, you know, from ports that were equipped. So once he was in place at Tersanabal, rather than throwing himself directly into expeditions into North Africa, which clearly was his aspiration, instead he began strategically investing money and personnel into small voyages down the western Atlantic coast of Africa. Okay, so so not eastward towards the Holy Land, but more uh, southward, in basically in the opposite direction, down the Atlantic coast. Why did he do this? Well, the Portuguese knew enough. They were aware that the lucrative goods, such as salt and especially gold, coming into these Islamic cities in North Africa were coming from some distant countries farther down, farther south in Africa. And Portuguese fishermen had gone down the coast of Africa as close, as far as Cape Bojador, which is sort of just beyond the boundaries of present-day Morocco. They didn't know what lay beyond Cape Bojador, and many of them believed that it was impossible to go any farther than that because you would burn up. You would get simply too close to the sun. The heat would become too great. So for hundreds of years, they had been content simply trading through North Africa. But Dom Enrique determines that it's worth it to take the risk of sending expeditions farther south. It seems there were three basic hopes that... Dom Enrique had in mind that spurred him on 
to fund these voyages beyond Cape Bojador to see what they found further down the continent. One was, as I already implied, uh, the hope of directly contacting the sources of these goods like gold and salt. Another was the hope of possibly traveling all the way around Africa and moving then eastward and making direct contact with Asia, okay, the, the, or the Indies, as they thought of it. This uh, was a bigger long-term uh, goal which would fulfill this ultimate hope of establishing direct trade with the Indies that would circumvent the entire Islamic world, including the Turks. Okay, so th this was not uh, as much a goal initially, because when these voyages began in the 1410s and 20s, following on the heels of Ceuta, Constantinople was not yet in Turkish hands, right? So this, this became more of a major goal later on in Dom Enrique's life. The third purpose of these voyages, which I've discussed some in already in my lecture on, on the late Middle Ages, so I may be repeating some things, but it, this is worth repeating. The third serious goal of Henry's voyages down the coast of Africa was the hope of eventually being able to uh, round around Africa reach either East Africa or the East Indies and make contact with Prester John. Okay, And as these voyages moved further down the coast, they would repeatedly uh, send messages, emissaries, uh, and search for any sign or any information about Prester John. And who was Prester John? Well, Prester John is a possibly real, possibly purely legendary figure that Europeans believed in, who first appears in written records in the 1200s. And they believed that this person that they called Prester John was a Christian king ruling a large Christian kingdom somewhere to the east of Jerusalem. Okay, It's possible that this legend may have been based in some way on Ethiopia, uh, which is a large Christian kingdom at the eastern, uh, in the eastern horn of Africa, which, you know, loosely speaking, is it, it's, it's east of Jerusalem, although it's south. It may have been inspired by stories of Nestorian Christian communities in Asia, of Mongol and Turkic local governors who were Christian. Uh, but whatever the inspiration, by the 1400s, many Europeans held out hope that they would eventually be able to communicate with Prester John, make an alliance with him, and hence launch, launch a pincer attack on the Muslim rulers of Jerusalem. Okay, Launch a new crusade together with this ally that would be able to attack uh, and capture Jerusalem with, with a double attack from both sides. So all in all, we know that Henry... Uh, you know, hoped that he, he launched these voyages as not as a way of finding trade or finding lands to colonize for its own sake or just for the sake of power or, or wealth, but as a means towards launching a crusading campaign. That was the purpose, okay?
What made these voyages possible was the use of new sailing technology and techniques that had rarely been used before by any Europeans. First, you know, the most important was a new sort of vessel called a caravel, which was based to some degree on Middle Eastern packet boats and small sailing ships. So the most experienced, most skilled uh, maritime traders at this time were, were mainly Arabs who traded around the Eastern Mediterranean, the Red Sea, the Arabian Sea, uh, and managed a lot of the trade between India, the Middle East, and, and Europe. Europeans, by comparison, did have some decent sailing ships. You know, the Vikings and others had been pretty good mariners, uh, but not on the same level as the Arabs. Europeans used a lot of galleys powered by uh, humans, you know, galley slaves, rowing oars. They also sometimes used square-rigged sails, okay? Simple rectangular sails put on masts that you could, that could catch the wind very strongly. This was good if you had favorable winds going in the direction you wanted. Uh, it would carry you forward very quickly. If there was a storm or a strong gale, you had to take them down or the winds could tear your masts to pieces. Also, square rigs are, you know, they're simple, they face forward, and if the wind isn't in the direction you want, there's not much you can do. You're basically stuck or you have to row. By contrast, the small, maneuverable Arab sailing ships used lateen sails, okay, triangular, small triangular sails that were mounted to be maneuverable back and forth and side to side. The lateen sails you could control more precisely and you could tack through the wind, meaning even if the wind was in the opposite direction from where you wanted to go, you could maneuver and zigzag and loop-de-loop -loop in such a way that you still made progress. And again, even in storms or difficult or erratic or high winds, you could control the lateen sails. So the caravel was a new style of sailing ship that was somewhat like these Arab ships, but you made much greater use of square rigging and combined it with lateen sails, right? So they were, they were still fairly small. Uh, they were smaller than the great, you know, Roman or Venetian war galleys, but they managed to strategically combine square rigging and lateen sails so that they could move very quickly in favorable winds, but also still have control and tack into the wind. And you really needed a caravel like this for these long voyages down the coast of Africa, because if you were going to go those long distances and then return, you were likely to have opposite wind conditions when you went down as compared to when you came back. So these long loop voyages into these unknown territories required a ship like the Caravel. Over time, these, these Portuguese voyages, even more than learning and charting the coast of Africa, more importantly, they learned and began to map the wind and sea currents of the Atlantic. Okay, and they began to figure out that if you simply used the wind to move you as quickly as possible, you could travel closely along the coast of Africa, 
Then when you were done and wanted to turn back, you could sail out into the open Atlantic and catch the sea currents and wind currents moving the other way. They would catch the North Atlantic drift or, or the Gulf Stream, as Americans would call it, and use that to loop back and then over back to Portugal. Okay, so they really became the first long-distance open ocean seafarers. Okay, they would go hundreds, even a thousand miles away from land knowing that there were the right currents to carry them back at the right time. And this, this process of, of looping out far into the ocean was called the Volta do Mar. Okay, the Portuguese phrase vol, Volta do Mar or return or loop of the sea. So by about 1450, these voyages had managed to get down uh, pretty much down to what we would call Senegal and the Gambia. In that area. They began trading more directly for gold closer to the source, in which this, the sources were further down in, in Ghana in that area, or what we would now call Ghana. So, so they had reached as far down as Senegal. They traded for gold, other African goods, bringing textiles, wine, uh, firearms, things like this. They also began acquiring slaves. So early on, beginning in 1444, some of these Portuguese voyages actually sent away teams into the mainland to basically capture people, you know, fight small battles and skirmishes, take prisoners, and bring them back to Portugal to sell as slaves. This, not surprisingly, was a very, you know, disturbing, upsetting process to a lot of the people who took part in it and to many of the people in Portugal who witnessed the sale of these slaves. So partly as a response to this, the, uh, the Portuguese government and Prince Henry changed their policy and these voyages started to instead buy captives that were already held in captivity in many of the African cities along the Upper Guinea coast. So there might be uh, debt, uh, debtor slaves, uh, prisoners of war, people who were held captive for whatever reason, and the Portuguese began uh, buying some of these these captives, bringing them back to Portugal, and thus spurring on a growing uh, slave trade in Africa. So this was the the beginning of of the Atlantic slave trade. These voyages were again spurred on enormously after 1453 once the Turks captured Constantinople, uh, the, the impetus for the project of finding a trade route to the east really intensified. Now, you might know that if you did this Volta do Mar, going down the coast of Africa and then westward out into the Atlantic, you were bound to run into other lands. And these voyages began a series of discoveries of islands in the Atlantic, some inhabited, most of them uninhabited, that provided the first ground for overseas colonization by Europeans, out, again, outside the Mediterranean. The Portuguese voyagers found Madeira, 
1419, very early on, uh, Madeira was soon uh, colonized and brought under cultivation by Portuguese colonists. They discovered the Azores in 1427, a sort of series of, of rugged islands further out, almost in the middle of the Atlantic, and Cape Verde in 1454. Okay, so another chain of islands further down, closer to the coast of West Africa, not far from Senegal and Sierra Leone. They also tried to claim and colonize the Canary Islands, and some, uh, you know, Prince Henry claimed that the the Portuguese had already found the Canary Islands much earlier in the 1300s, but this claim was disputed by Castile, and the Castilians ended up winning the sort of power struggle for control of the Canary Islands, and the the Castilian conquerors also uh, enslaved and eventually wiped out most of the indigenous Guanche people in the Canary Islands. So the Canaries were unusual in that they were already inhabited. These other islands were had been previously unknown to human beings. Portuguese settlers over the course of the 1400s, uh, as I said, settled these islands, began cultivating wine on many of them, uh, especially Madeira. And then also sugar. Okay, so sugarcane had been cultivated for centuries on large plantations worked by serfs or slaves in the Mediterranean, places like Sicily. Uh, in the 1400s, the Portuguese transferred, uh, you know, planted sugarcane and transferred a lot of those cultivation techniques into these Atlantic islands. And they began using greater economies of scale, quickly setting up very large plantations, moving large numbers of servants and laborers and eventually African slaves into these large sugar plantations. They set up uh, new technologies like sugarcane presses and furnaces for boiling uh, cane, cane juice and cane syrup right on the plantations themselves. And this sort of new system of mass cultivation and mass processing of sugar has been called the sugar complex. Okay, so this, this sugar complex was invented mainly by the Portuguese on these islands, especially Cape Verde, and later was developed further on islands farther down the coast of Africa, like Sao Tome, which is down close to the equator, south of West Africa. They also, beginning in 1434, began colonizing mainland Africa in usually in very small ways by setting up uh, small fortresses for trading gold, salt, uh, and slaves, sometimes with the permission uh, of local African rulers, sometimes uh, with threats and coercion. Uh, they, they began to set up uh, sort of fortified trading outposts, which would form the sort of first footholds of larger conquests into Africa. Dom Enrique died in 1460, but these voyages continued, uh, you know, down. By the time he died, they had reached probably about as far as Sierra Leone, and reports were being sent back of the states and kingdoms and cities in that area, uh, back to Portugal. 
after he died, they continued, and the crown continued this uh, long-term project of moving and colonizing down the Atlantic. They eventually went to uh, to Angola, and in 1498, finally rounded the southern end of Africa and entered into the Indian Ocean. The Portuguese explorer Bartolomeu Diaz was the first to pass what they called the Cape of Good Hope, which he considered to be the sort of final tip of Africa. And a few years later, Vasco da Gama successfully uh, passed the southern end of Africa, voyaged across the Indian Ocean, and reached Calicut in India. So finally, by 1500, the Portuguese had realized this dream of reaching Asia and opening up trade and diplomatic relations with Asia. The Portuguese continued this uh, strategy of founding small fortified outposts, which they called factories, along the coast of eastern Africa at places like Zanzibar and India, eventually setting up their main uh, powerful outpost at Goa in India. The Portuguese naval commander Alfonso de Albuquerque made very effective use of these Portuguese sailing techniques and also of artillery, gunpowder artillery, and basically intruded into sea lanes and territories that had previously been the purview of the Arab and Indian traders. And when he met resistance, he simply crushed opposition and won a series of dramatic naval victories, including at Diu in 1509, where he destroyed a combined Egyptian and Gujarati naval fleet that had joined together to try to block out these Portuguese traders and explorers and defend their claim to these, these sea lanes. So with the victory at Diu in 1509, the path basically was cleared for the Portuguese to claim and capture more cities like Aden in Arabia and even continue rapidly further east to Malacca in what's now Malaysia, uh, Macau, which they claimed as another outpost, and eventually reached Japan and found a a trading outpost which would eventually grow into the city of Nagasaki. So within no more than about 60 years after the death of Henry the Navigator, the Portuguese had created a massive trading empire all the way around Africa and across South Asia and all the way to Japan. Uh, this was, you know, really in incredible, unimaginable success, beginning from what had probably at the time reasonably seemed like a crazy pipe dream. It established the Portuguese as the main naval and mercantile power, really all over Afro-Eurasia, and they used strategies to establish this massively powerful uh, empire using really minimal manpower. The Port Portugal was a small kingdom with limited uh, population, not very much of it available to be mobilized overseas in the way that you would see in other countries like England. 
and they had to basically stretch their resources as far as they possibly could. And they largely did so by limiting their conquests to small, uh, contained, defensible, strategic points along coastlines and establishing as much as they could friendly relations with the surrounding land powers, right? Establishing uh, friendly trade relations with the emperors of China and Japan, with the Mughal rulers and local governors around India, and uh, rulers uh, in Africa, like the king of the Congo. All of these created alliances, mutually, often mutually beneficial alliances, with the Portuguese. And this is what enabled such a small country with such limited population and resources like Portugal to create this incredible string of outposts which made it possible for a Portuguese vessel to travel all the way from Europe, around Africa, and around Asia, all the way to Japan without ever having to dock in a foreign Additionally, another unexpected uh, encounter extended the Portuguese Empire in a different direction, in a way that they never intended. In 1500, the Portuguese mariner Cabral was sailing down the coast of Africa, intending to round Africa and continue into the Indian Ocean, but he ended up being blown far off course, far to the west into the ocean, and he accidentally landed in a land far to the west that no European had ever encountered before. He landed, was able to make some rudimentary communication with the indigenous people there, and soon this land was called Brazil by the Portuguese because of the Brazil wood trees that grew there. The Portuguese would go on to colonize Brazil and it would become really the largest single European overseas colony in the world in the 15 and 1600s. Again, this was unexpected and unintended. So in this way, we could say that in a sense, Cabral discovered America. You know, he didn't just, he was not the first to discover it in the sense that there were already millions of people there. But he did uh, encounter something that no previous European ever had. Now, you might say, okay, well, uh, even that isn't true because, you know, hadn't Columbus already landed? Well, it, it, it's true that eight years earlier, uh, another Italian mariner under the employ of Castile had actually managed to land in the Caribbean islands before Cabral landed in Brazil, but that was a totally separate development. You could say, in a sense, counterfactually, if there had been no Columbus, Cabral still would have landed <laughs> in Brazil. Uh, in, in other words, the, the Portuguese were on their way to discovering basically all the major land masses all around the world, regardless of Columbus. Dom Enrique's dream of launching a large-scale expedition to the Holy Land was never realized, of course. So the, the core idea that had motivated this Portuguese expansion from the beginning uh, never got off the ground. However, there was, in a sense, you might say, a kind of consolation prize where the 
extensive Portuguese outposts around Africa and Asia ended up becoming the first major base for Christian uh, evangelization in those lands. In particular, certain uh, early Jesuit missionaries used the Portuguese colonies as their base. Okay, And one in particular became especially famous, Francis Xavier, now called St. Francis Xavier, who was a Basque priest Okay, from, from Navarre, the Basque country, who joined, was one of the original founding members of the Society of Jesus, or the Jesuits, in the early 1500s. And the Jesuits, as I'll, I'll probably talk about them some later, they saw themselves as kind of spiritual crusaders, carrying on the crusading tradition in a spiritual rather than military field of action. And the Jesuit order basically assigned Francis Xavier to go abroad to these Portuguese outposts and begin spreading the Catholic faith to these you know, heathen peoples as they saw them. Francis Xavier traveled all around Africa, Asia, particularly India and Southeast Asia, you know, just unimaginable different distances for a priest to go. I mean, think of, you know, priests in Europe were accustomed to being assigned to a parish and staying there for decades until they died. You know, Xavier was sort of the first Christian priest to set out on the sea lanes and become a kind of spiritual crusader, spiritual conquistador, you might say. He learned multiple languages. He adopted different customs, different dress to accommodate himself to the different societies that he encountered and try to appeal to them in their own terms to hear and accept the Christian message. He eventually died on an island on the coast of China where he was being held in quarantine waiting to hopefully cross over and enter the empire of China. Uh, and. As such, he, he was the first Catholic priest to set foot in Chinese territory at all, uh, although he didn't get to eventually set foot on the mainland and begin a beachhead for Western Christianity in his own lifetime. But he was followed up later after his death by others like Matteo Ricci. So in the life of Francis Xavier, we can see a kind of, uh, in a sort of, strange, uh, distorted, outlandish form, a kind of alternative continuation of the crusading quest. By the time Francis Xavier died, another empire was also spreading around the globe and almost closed an entire loop reaching Asia. It came soon after. And that empire, as I've already mentioned, was the Spanish Empire which began strictly as an endeavor of the crown of Castile. So I've talked already about Columbus. I did a lecture a while ago in time for Columbus Day last year about Columbus. So I won't get into the gory details of Columbus again, but basically you might remember Spain faced a new dilemma in 1492. So Spain, like Portugal, grew out of the crusading states of the Reconquista. 
and the final Islamic state left to conquer was Granada, which finally fell to the Spanish Christian forces in the beginning of 1492. And once they had captured Granada, Ferdinand and Isabella faced a dilemma somewhat similar to the dilemma of the Muslim generals and rulers who followed after the death of Muhammad, right? So there's a similar crisis when you organize a society around a grand leader or vision or mission, and then you've completed it. Either the leader dies or the conquest is complete. And then what do you do with all these people that you've organized and mobilized and armed to further that mission? You're in grave danger that this, uh, these groups that you've united together around this cause are simply going to collapse or melt away or might fragment and turn to fighting each other. So Ferdinand and Isabella's solution was, on the, on the one hand, one of their strategies was to extend patronage to this sort of crazy Italian mariner Columbus who claimed that he could sail to Asia by setting out to the West. Okay, just then, and think of, you know, how strange this was. You know, the, the Portuguese were already taking enormous risks and pushing boundaries just by sailing out into the ocean at all with the confidence that you're going to make it back to Europe. So Columbus was claiming that he could sail all the way around the world, across the entire ocean and reach East Asia, and, and in this way beat the Portuguese who were still trying to get all the way down the coast of Africa and over to Asia. So Isabella extended patronage and support to Columbus. And again, I won't go deep into the gory details, but Columbus's four voyages to the Americas set off a rapid and often brutal conquest of the Caribbean basin. Okay, Cuba, Hispaniola, the other Caribbean islands, and places along the mainland coast of Central America, Colombia, Venezuela. Uh, this often involved, uh, you know, raiding and pillaging of indigenous societies, terroristic violence, particularly against the elites and leaders of these various societies, uh, the creation of small fortified outposts, much like the Portuguese did, but uh, which did not, you know, establish sort of relations of coexistence with the native people like uh, the Portuguese tended to do, but rather threats, uh, subjugation. And eventually after 1500, the initial steps in transferring that sugar complex that I talked about into the Caribbean, right? Bringing sugarcane and other tropical products and creating large-scale farms, what we would call plantations, using forced labor of various sorts to cultivate these tropical crops, especially sugarcane, and, comp and uh, process them. The Spanish incursion into the Americas immediately caused a dispute, specifically with Portugal. Columbus had tried to get Portuguese patronage for his scheme of sailing to the West, but uh, Portugal had repeatedly turned him away. Well, now, in 1493, the, the Portuguese found out that Castile 
had sponsored this voyage and that it had had some success, that it had actually discovered some land far to the west that could be raided and pillaged for various goods. And the Portuguese were upset because they had already acquired uh, a kind of patent from the Pope saying that any lands that they discovered in the ocean or on the African coast beyond Cape Bojador basically belonged to Portugal to trade with and to colonize as they chose. Okay, so in their view, these previously unknown, unencountered lands to the West were properly in their purview, and trade and profit from them should belong to Portugal. So they uh, objected, and they managed to get an audience with the Pope, and the Pope mediated and sealed the Treaty of Tordesillas in 1494, which effectively drew an imaginary line along a certain line of longitude through the Atlantic Ocean and divided the world and said uh, everything that lies east of this line is sort of fair game for the Portuguese to trade and to colonize and if they can to conquer and to evangelize whereas everything to the west would belong to the Spanish right so this this was a satisfactory resolution at least for the time being for both sides. Now, this uh, you know, established a precedent allowing the Spanish to conquer and colonize in the Americas and the Portuguese to colonize in Africa and Asia. Now, it happens that on the one hand, if you continue that line southward through the Atlantic, it actually runs into the eastern edge of South America and a large chunk of what we now know as Brazil sticks out to the east of that line. So this made it uh, very opportune when Cabral landed uh, in Brazil by accident in 1500. It was, it, the land extended far enough east that the Portuguese were able to start trading and colonizing in Brazil without violating the Treaty of Tordesillas. Now the Spanish sort of got back at them years later when they uh, managed to begin sending voyages, uh, beginning with Magellan, uh, across the Pacific and reach Asia, because they found that if you extend that line all the way around the globe, on the other side, it cuts off large chunks of East Asia and Southeast Asia which then fall on the Spanish side. And this was the legal justification then for the Spanish to start colonizing the Philippines, right? And the, this colony of the Philippines, as I mentioned before, was named after the Spanish king, Philip II. So the Treaty of Tordesillas, you know, is this incredible, you know, act of hubris where, you know, this, this little cabal of Europeans, of Iberians and the Pope together, you know, sliced the world in two, basically, and apportioned it out between these two countries, which had previously been fairly small, peripheral, poor countries. But it ended up having real enormous consequences, you know, in, in uh, spurring on and managing European expansion and conquest all around the world. Okay. So what did the Spanish do following the Treaty of Tordesillas? Well, as I said, there was this initial Caribbean phase of conquest, frequent uh, mass killing, and eventually colonization and cultivation in the Caribbean. 
And in 1517, this uh, campaign began to extend beyond the Caribbean into the mainland of the Americas, which is where the truly large, powerful, and wealthy civilizations were located. Okay, the main ones, as I talked about before, being in Mexico, especially the Central Valley of Mexico, and Peru in the Andes. Okay, these were the two main imperial centers of the Americas. The Spanish were able to conquer remarkably quickly and effectively large sections of the American mainlands, including those two main empires in Mexico and Peru. I'm going to talk about how that happened, how it unfolded, but first I'm going to talk about why it was possible. Okay, The Spanish conquering adventurers, who you know in Spanish are called conquistadores, were mainly sort of ragtag bands of privately organized adventurers, a lot of them veterans of the war against Granada, who, after the victory at Granada, sort of had didn't have anything to do with themselves, and hence signed up for these kind of, uh, you know, risky, just ill-planned uh, blunders into the Americas, mo- many of which ended up being incredibly successful. This wasn't because they were more numerous. They were not. They were usually tremendously outnumbered by the indigenous states and empires that they attacked. They were not necessarily particularly smart. You know, they were as smart as experienced generals and warriors tend to be. They didn't necessarily have superior knowledge. And they, they did have some superior technology but not as massively superior as you might think, and not in the ways that you might think. Firstly, firearms played very little role in the Spanish conquests in the Americas. Uh, You know, firearms at this time tended to be, if they were powerful, like cannon, they tended to be very heavy, hard to move. Uh, You know, if you were a conquistador venturing into the mountainous mainlands of the Americas, there was no way you were going to bother dragging, uh, you know, heavy cannon with you, you know, up and down roads and mountainsides. Uh, So they were basically irrelevant. The handheld firearms at this time were mainly early muskets, particularly arquebuses, which could be useful sometimes uh, in the right situations. But they, again, were very big and heavy. Uh, They tended to be unreliable. They didn't fire dependably. They couldn't be aimed. They just sort of exploded in a general direction. And in all sorts of ways, they were really not useful in a tight battle, especially when you were fighting hand-to-hand and outnumbered. So firearms were generally not important. The crucial advantages that the Spanish did have when they began venturing into the mainlands of the Americas were, one, uh, navigation technologies, right? The ability to appear and also withdraw quickly, move up and down coastlines. Even more than that, horses, okay? There were no domesticated pack animals that one could ride on in the Americas. There were, there were no horses or similar animals. So being able to suddenly, you know, ride up and charge forward at high speed, fight from a, a higher position of advantage, this was a tremendous asset to the conquistadores. And technologically, even more important than horses, finally, was steel weapons, okay? There, there were not 
very large iron deposits accessible to these empires in the Americas. Uh, they tended only to have bronze weapons. Okay, so technologically speaking, they were still in the Bronze Age. Okay, the strongest uh, weapons they had were usually axes made of bronze and tipped with obsidian, which was, you know, sharp enough uh, to, to cut and hack much more effectively than, than bronze. By comparison, the, the Europeans had steel weapons, which could be extremely powerful and heavy and also could be sharpened to a very sharp edge. Right, so steel battle axes, steel swords were truly, uh, you know, they truly outmatched bronze weapons such as the Aztecs had. Okay, so these technological advantages were very significant, but really the main reason, even beyond technological differences, the main reason why the Spanish were able to conquer was actually disease, right? So I think I mentioned this, I talked about this some in my lecture on Columbus. As soon as Columbus landed, waves of epidemics broke out among the Americans. And these epidemics continued and intensified as Europeans penetrated further into the Americas. The Europeans were coming from a society and a civilization where large numbers, millions of human beings had lived in close communion with animals, you know, pigs, chickens, cattle, horses, and so forth, and where pathogens of various kinds could develop among humans and among these animals and then spread and move repeatedly back and forth all through Eurasia and Africa. Okay, so when these Europeans showed up in the Americas, they were covered in pathogens that Americans had not been exposed to, right? Americans, by comparison, tended to live in more isolated uh, pockets, and they had far fewer domesticated animals. So they, their immune systems had no resistance to diseases like typhus and influenza, and most especially smallpox, a very deadly, fast-moving crowd disease that had simply never existed in the Americas. And by comparison, they didn't have so many pathogens to pass back to the Europeans. Eventually, some new diseases like syphilis would make their way back from America to Europe, but they were nowhere near as fast-moving and as deadly as the sort of uh, host or you know army of deadly viruses and bacteria that the Europeans brought with them to America. So as Europeans encountered new societies, they were very quickly falling ill, losing population and particularly losing fighters. Okay, so this in effect uh, paved the way for an easy European conquest, uh, totally in a totally unexpected, unintentional, and uncontrolled way. Lastly, the Spanish were able to make many of their conquests remarkably quickly and effectively because of strategic alliances with indigenous people, okay? These were not unified societies. Soci and I'll talk about this more later when I get into Mexico, but there were many cleavages, rivalries, enmities already existing among indigenous Americans. You know, this, as I said, this, this is a continent with just as complex and tumultuous a history 
as Europe or Asia. So, you know, this th there was no sense of Americans being a unified people that had to face off against this new invader, but rather the Europeans took advantage of existing enmities and uh, diplomatically and strategically uh, took control of many of these societies. Okay. So these are the factors at work that made these, this sort of stunning and rapid wave of conquests possible. But that being said, somebody still had to do it. And the particular individuals who showed up on the scene and the way they went about it would have tremendous reverberating uh, effects. So the first important conquistador to show up uh, on the American mainland was Hernán Cortés. Okay, he was not the first one to land in, in the mainland. He was not the first one even to land specifically in Mexico, but he was the first one to press the advantage and make major conquests. Hernán Cortés was a minor nobleman from uh, Extremadura, interior area of Castile, right? So it was this land that had been carved out by the Reconquista, which had this long, uh, you know, crusading heritage from the Reconquista and which had a large, a largely vestigial nobility descended from these crusading knights. So again, you know, Cortes is a perfect example of this sort of vestigial leftover nobility basically looking for something to do with themselves. And this is the kind of background that a lot of the conquistadores came from. And he had a lot of this sort of aggressive, fearless uh, crusader mentality that had been bred into many of these Spanish and Portuguese noblemen. Cortes led an expedition from the Caribbean to the mainland of Mexico in 1519. And after they landed in Mexico near what's now Veracruz, uh, they gained information about the existence of a large empire with major large cities somewhere in the interior. Consequently, Cortes burned all of their landing ships. He determined that this uh, team of a few hundred adventurers should go into the interior and try to conquer this empire, <laughs> which was an incredibly, you know, unrealistic, ambitious scheme, but he wanted to be sure that there was no way for his men to give up and turn back. So he destroyed their fleet and started to move inland towards this, this interior empire. Along the way, they encountered a people called the Tlaxcala uh, in, in a kingdom called uh, Tlaxcalteca. And they quickly made a provisional alliance with the Tlaxcala. And this was very important because the Tlaxcala were uh, a sort of local power of their own that had only a few decades earlier been conquered and subjugated by the Aztecs. So they had no great love for the Aztecs. And they were reduced to sort of the position of a client state or a protectorate of the Aztec Empire. And... They saw these Europeans unexpectedly showing up on the scene as a possible opportunity. And they made an alliance and they gave Cortes 20 uh, female slaves as a kind of uh, diplomatic gift, uh, sealing this new relationship. 
And remember, as I said before, there was a very uh, sophisticated, elaborate system of diplomatic speech and exchange and gift giving, uh, regulating relations among these different American peoples. Okay, and so they give Cortez this set of 20 female slaves, and among them is a woman whom the Spanish call Marina, but who was called by indigenous people, came to be called La Malinche. And La Malinche apparently was a very uh, ambitious woman, and she was a talented linguist, and she was able to master the Spanish language very quickly and also other uh, indigenous languages around Mexico. So she began to act as an interpreter to Cortez, and soon after that also an advisor, a diplomat, and became his mistress. Okay, and La Malinche was a sort of crucial early link, allowing the Spanish to maneuver effectively in this very complicated political world of Mexico. And since that time, she's also become sort of a symbol of, of uh, the link between Spain and Mexico and also of, of treachery, really, of, of disloyalty. Uh, so she's, she's sort of charged symbol uh, in Mexico. But it does seem she was important in allowing the, the Spanish to so quickly insert themselves into the complicated political world of Mexico and the Aztec Empire. News of these strange foreigners landing and moving into Mexico soon reaches the imperial court at Tenochtitlan. And the emperor Moctezuma II basically gives orders that uh, if anyone makes contact with these Europeans, they should bring them directly to the capital in order for uh, the emperor to meet them and assess who they are and what they're up to. So only a few months later, in 1519, Moctezuma and Cortes meet on a causeway on Lake Texcoco leading into the capital of Tenochtitlan. They exchange gifts. Uh, the emperor gives Cortes a series of gifts, including gold and silver carved diagrams of the Aztec calendar, which was so symbolically important to them. And he delivers a, a speech praising Cortes, welcoming him to the capital, and inviting him to the imperial palace. And he apparently in this speech, according to different sources, he says something to the effect of this palace belongs to you. We have been waiting for you. We are here to welcome you to your throne. Now, it does seem that this speech did take place, but it's hotly debated exactly what this means. Okay, the Europeans took it to mean that Moctezuma was basically handing his empire over to the Spanish, whom he recognized as civilizationally superior. This was very convenient for Cortes because under Spanish law, these conquistadores had no right to claim control of American territory unless they were given permission, unless a sovereignty was handed over to them by the indigenous rulers and leaders. This is part of why the 
conquistadores in the Caribbean had gone around terrorizing and killing a lot of these leaders. It was a way of uh, forcing them to hand over control to the Spanish and legitimating their conquests. So this was very diplomatically and legally convenient for Cortes that Moctezuma made this, uh, this speech, basically offering him the throne and the palace. Some subsequently also, including indigenous Mexican scholars in later years, theorized that Moctezuma believed that Cortes was the reappearance of an Aztec god called Quetzalcoatl, who was a, a sort of snake deity, a deity of wisdom. And these Mexican chronicles and codices written later in the 1500s say that the Aztecs believed that this that this god had already appeared in the form of the final Toltec emperor. Uh, so the, the Toltec were the sort of previous empire that had existed in Mexico before the Aztecs, and they had a final, a last emperor before the collapse of the Toltec empire who had a name that sounded sort of similar to Quetzalcoatl. So these Mexican chroniclers say that the Aztecs believed that that uh, this god had appeared in the form of this last emperor and would later reappear in order to take back rule over Mexico from the Aztecs. And hence Moctezuma thought that Cortes was the new embodiment, the new appearance of this god come to assume rulership from Moctezuma. Now, there is no archaeological or textual evidence of this myth from before the conquest. Okay, so it's very dubious whether this is true. We do know that there was an Aztec god, Quetzalcoatl, who was very important, but we do not have any confirmation that they believed that Quetzalcoatl had disappeared and would return, or that they somehow thought that the Europeans were Quetzalcoatl. That was all claimed retroactively, and it's very open to doubt whether that was true or if it was made up again as a sort of justification for why why Moctezuma made this speech and why the Spanish conquest happened so quickly and easily okay now lastly if you talk to current scholars and if you put this speech by Moctezuma into the context of what we know about pre-Columbian America, it seems most likely that the speech was simply a highly formal diplomatic nicety, that he was saying, we welcome you, we invite you to your throne and your palace, uh, you know, this entire realm belongs to you. He was saying that in order to show extreme diplomatic politeness and in order, in a sense, to demonstrate his superiority, to show an exaggerated sense of security and condescension towards these foreigners appearing in the empire. Okay, in, in similar ways, if you look at the Chinese voyages of Zheng He, they would simply go around to these foreign lands and just give out gifts. Okay, it was a way of demonstrating China's supremacy and superiority. So really, this speech by Moctezuma fits into what we know about the sort of extremely formal, polite diplomacy of the Americas in this age. Okay, so the the small uh, expeditionary force under Cortes accepts this invitation. They go back to the palace. They take up lodging there in the palace. And 
after a certain number of months, they begin to overstay their welcome. Okay, you know, you're, you're, you're not always supposed to accept these polite diplomatic offers. You know, at some point, you're, you're supposed to politely decline and say, oh, you've been so nice to us, but we, we couldn't possibly impose on you any longer. Well, they stayed and they kept imposing. And this gradually created more irritation, especially among the imperial court and the high nobility in the imperial court in Tenochtitlan, as more and more people began to suspect that these Spanish visitors were up to something, that they were scoping them out, they were up to, they were somehow up to no good. So eventually, in the beginning of 1520, some of these imperial officials put their foot down and tell the emperor, you have to ask these guys to leave. So the emperor, in a very polite diplomatic way, says, well, you know, it, 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 it might be good if you left soon. You know, people are getting impatient. You might want to go soon. So the Spanish take this as an indication to act quickly. And what they end up doing is they take advantage of their presence within the palace to basically take the emperor hostage. They move into the imperial quarters and take him hostage and are able to, you know, back up their threats with their superior weaponry, right? All they need is to control the emperor himself and a small space around him. And the emperor is, is revered as a, a divine figure. So he's a very effective hostage. If you can hold him and threaten him, you can basically control the entire imperial court. Uh, eventually, the emperor asks for permission to leave the palace and go to worship at one of the main temples in the capital city. Spanish escorts accompany him there, and at this worship service, we don't know exactly what happened. Different accounts conflict, but somehow a fight breaks out between the sort of, you know, warrior nobles at this worship in the temple and the Spanish. It's possible, according to the Spanish, what spurred them on was that they tried to intervene and stop a human sacrifice, which we do know was practiced in these Aztec temples. Others said they just started stealing people's gold jewelry. You know, but either is possible. But whatever the reason, a fight breaks out. The Spanish massacre. They use their superior weaponry and massacre much of the imperial court. And they take Moctezuma back to the palace. This spurs, you know, riots and, and outrage. Uh, masses of, of soldiers and commoners begin gathering around the palace, threatening to attack. And reportedly, the Spanish force the emperor to go out on a balcony and try to calm the crowd and tell them to disperse. Something goes wrong. Some people say uh, the crowd started to throw rocks and darts at the emperor, you know, furious at him for giving in. To, to the Spanish captors. Others say he accidentally fell off the balcony or he was pushed or thrown off the balcony or he was brought back into the palace. But whatever happened shortly after, the emperor died. And we don't know clearly if it was an accident or if the Spanish killed him intentionally or someone else killed him. But the emperor dies. And not surprisingly, this only further fans the flames. There are massive riots and attacks on the palace. And the Spanish basically have to quietly sneak out of the city and retreat. They flee from the city and they go out back to the Tlaxcala, right? The Tlaxcala receive them 
and they're able to make a strategic agreement to jointly counterattack and capture Tenochtitlan. Okay, that is that is their goal. Okay. The Tlaxcala and Cortez's men go back and counterattack in 1521 along with some other indigenous allies from around central Mexico. They find the city almost completely crippled by smallpox. Okay. There have been waves of smallpox outbreaks. Most of the Aztec army by now is sick with smallpox. A large portion has already died. And it really only takes one quick attack to defeat the young Aztec emperor who had had to succeed to the throne after Moctezuma and his brother both died. They're able to take up uh, control and residence uh, in the palace. Cortes takes up residence with La Malinche, who is now, you know, his sort of unofficial concubine, and they begin governing. A couple things to note about this conquest of Tenochtitlan. One is that, you know, as I said, it was really made possible not only by superior weaponry, but even more so by disease. And it was a joint endeavor of the Spanish and their allies, most importantly, the Tlaxcala. And the Tlaxcala, from their point of view, did not see this as the Spanish conquest of Mexico. They saw it as the Tlaxcala conquest. Okay, this was the traditional enemies of the Aztecs successfully fighting back and taking control of the Aztec capital with the help of their sort of weird new allies from abroad. The Spanish and the Tlaxcala subsequently take up joint cooperative rule over Mexico. And not surprisingly, there are decades after, subsequent decades of friction and conflict between the Spanish and the Tlaxcala as the Spanish more and more take the upper hand and sort of assert their dominance as the senior partners in this alliance, okay? Uh, but it's really, for decades, it's, it's very ambiguous and disputed exactly who is in charge and on what terms. But it's clear that the most powerful individual in the empire now is Cortez, who has more or less, uh, you know, unofficially taken up the the imperial throne, basically. And afterwards, he will then be replaced with viceroys or vice kings appointed from Castile. So once uh, Cortes is in control in Mexico, other away teams of conquistadores sort of fan out to the north and south, looking for more cities and empires to conquer. Some of them found small, you know, colonies and outposts. But the one who really gets lucky is Pizarro. So another sort of similar group, barely trained, barely organized group of adventurers under Francisco Pizarro ventures southward down through the Andes uh, with information that there is a large, powerful empire centered in Peru. Like Cortes, they're able to obtain a diplomatic meeting with the emperor just outside of the capital of Cusco. So again, almost a perfect echo of what happened in Mexico. Now, the emperor at this time was 
Atahualpa. And Atahualpa had only very recently taken power. You know, unlike Moctezuma, he was not a long-reigning emperor. He was new. He had just recently come to power because he had won a power struggle civil war within the empire against a relative. And that civil war had broken out because of a succession dispute after the previous emperor, Huayna Capac, died of smallpox. Okay, so already before Pizarro showed up on the scene, smallpox had already preceded them, spreading down through these dense populations in South America and reaching Cuzco, where it killed much of the soldiery and much of the popular population and the Emperor Huayna Capac. So the emperor, the, 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 the empire is already weakened and suffering from divisions even before Pizarro shows up. In 1530, they are able to finagle this meeting with with the emperor Atahualpa outside Cuzco. Now, the emperor is no fool. He brings with him an enormous contingent of thousands of warriors, you know, armed to the teeth with bronze and obsidian weapons, and he's carried to the meeting on a tremendous elevated litter carried by his servants. Okay, so he's not walking out into an open field and shaking hands. with. He's heavily defended. Nevertheless, the Spanish are able to approach close enough to speak personally to the emperor on his litter. And once they get that close, they then simply break out their steel weapons and start attacking. The Incan warriors counterattack, but their weapons are basically broken to pieces by these uh, Spanish uh, swords and battle axes. Also, a small away team on a nearby hillside fires off some arquebuses into this crowd of Incan soldiers. It's not clear if this makes much of a difference militarily. We don't know if they hit anybody, but probably the loud bangs, you know, added to the confusion and mayhem of the scene which the Spanish take advantage of to basically bring the emperor's litter to the ground, where they then move in, take him captive, and run off. Okay, so like Cortez's team did with Moctezuma, they simply go straight for the divine figurehead of the emperor, take him captive, and hold him hostage. And what they do first is they take him to a sort of remote mountain town, where they hold him hostage and demand enormous quantities of gold and silver for ransom. The Incans have to gather and melt down huge collections of gold and silver sculptures, sculpted gardens made of gold. They melt them down into ingots to give to to the captors holding Atahualpa. And then once the Spanish have this enormous stash of gold and silver, they then simply kill the emperor anyway. Okay, so the empire at this point has already gone through one damaging civil war because of a succession dispute when Huayna Capac died and Pizarro sets him up, himself up as the new emperor, right? The new, the new Sapa Inca, okay? And he basically takes the imperial throne and again, like with Cortes, he is then followed by appointed viceroys from Spain. And if you look at Incan sources, Incan literature and art from subsequent decades, it's the, the Incans basically looked upon these Spanish viceroys as a, a continuation of, you know, just a new imperial dynasty. 
right? In their view, the Incan Empire didn't fall. It simply got a new dynasty of rulers. And you can even see paintings produced by Peruvian artists in the 16-1700s where artists would paint portraits of the various different Incan emperors through the centuries down to and including Atahualpa, and then they would continue the portraits with the Spanish viceroys. Right? They simply, as they saw it, 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 the empire continued just under a new rulership. The Spanish, for their part, they, they took advantage of the existing infrastructures of these empires. Right, They take control of the capitals at Tenochtitlan and Cuzco. In some cases, they also create new capital cities like Lima, which they build on the coast of Peru. Uh, so they'll have easier communication by sea and also lower elevation, which is easier for Europeans to, to live in. It's hard for many Europeans to go up into those extremely high elevations in the Andes. So uh, Lima becomes a sort of almost like a base camp for Spanish control of the Inca Empire. And they use the resources, the, you know, the money, the labor power of these empires to then continue their conquests further out, right? And their use of the horse and of sailing ships makes it much easier for them to move longer distances and extend their control up into uh, northern Mexico, into what's now New Mexico, through Central America, down the Andes into Chile and Argentina, over into Venezuela. And, and so these, these empires expand under Spanish rule, even as they're losing most of their population. Okay, so they create a hierarchy of officials, including not only viceroys, but regional governors uh, and smaller uh, local um, managers, mayors called alcaldes. They create a sort of pyramid of smaller regional officials and councils reporting ultimately to Spain. And they parcel out this new territory to conquistadores. Right, so these these men who had gone and taken these great risks to conquer these unknown territories in the Americas, they now demand power and and want a reward. And what the Spanish their policy basically is to carve out sort of smaller county-sized regions, assign them to various conquistadores, and give those conquistadores the right to demand certain forms of labor from the indigenous people living in those areas, right? This is what's called the encomienda. Okay, and if you had an encomienda, you, you might be able to demand that the natives in your domain come work on your plantations or come work on in your mines for two months of the year or three months of the year, or to demand that they contribute a certain number of servants or soldiers to your household, right? In one way or another, you could claim labor from these people, right? This makes it possible for the Spanish to sort of jumpstart their exploitation of, of the Americas, right? Mining the gold and silver, growing sugarcane and other crops. However, one of the main problems with the encomienda was the fact that the indigenous population was dwindling, right? These epidemics continued. Whenever you had a very large gathering, you know, a growing town or encampment of indigenous people, smallpox would break out, uh, other diseases, and the the population just kept 
declining. Now we know over time, between 1492 and about 1650 or so, somewhere around 90% of the population died off. Okay, that's how much it shrank. That didn't all happen at once, right? It happened gradually, it happened in waves. And over the course of the 1500s, Spanish officials could see that this was what was happening and that the encomienda system, which demanded often very hard, brutal labor from the indigenous people and which took them out of their communities where they had food sources, put them into these labor camps where they had poor living conditions, poor food supplies, lots of disease, they could see that this was causing harm and that it was further decimating the population. So over time, these Spanish officials began to report back to Spain that the encomienda system had to change or had to be stopped and that this control over labor was simply wiping out the population that was supposed to be doing the labor and that over time it was going to simply depopulate the entire empire. So these reports back from Spanish officials about the encomienda conditions fed into a growing dispute and an escalating uh, conflict within Spain over the legitimacy of Spanish rule in the Americas. Okay, so not long after the Spanish landed in the Caribbean, certain Spanish colonizers began to raise objections and to question both how the Spanish were conquering, their violent methods, and whether they had any legitimate claim over any territories in the Americas at all. Okay, this critique began from churchmen and most particularly from the Dominican order. Okay. And a crucial watershed was in 1511 when the main Dominican priest at the Spanish uh, colony in Hispaniola delivered a sermon uh, in 1511, basically excoriating the Spanish colonizers and conquistadores for violating you know, all the sacred principles of Christianity, bringing a bad name to Christianity, and just committing the most grievous mortal sins in their violent attacks on the indigenous people, and also rejecting the idea that the Spanish could legitimately claim control over territory through violence and threats. One of the encomienda holding conquistadores who was there in the church when Montesinos delivered this sermon in 1511 was named Bartolomé de las Casas. And Las Casas was so struck and so moved with this sermon that he joined the priesthood, became a Dominican, and basically took up Montesinos's message. And Las Casas was a very passionate missionary priest and he was uh, vehement in propagating this message. He also uh, was a talented writer and speaker. And uh, basically the sermons and pamphlets and reports sent back by Montesinos and Las Casas back to Spain helped to spur on the laws of Burgos, which were promulgated by the Spanish crown in 1512. These laws of Burgos uh, basically put limits for the first time on the powers of Spanish 
conquistadores and encomenderos, as the holders of encomienda rights uh, were called. Uh, it required them to provide a certain level of, of shelter and living conditions and food. It limited uh, the, the time periods of labor that they could demand, and it gave certain protections to the indigenous peoples. These laws of Burgos were basically unenforceable and never enforced, right? There, no, nobody had enough control over these armed adventurers and conquerors to really limit how they treated the indigenous people, right? The, this sort of reign of terror basically continued for decades after, uh, you know, the laws of Burgos were basically a, a dead letter. So this spurs on uh, Las Casas and his mission, and he writes further reports, including a, a general history of the destruction of the Indies, which is a famous uh, long report uh, cataloging the sort of massive massacres by conquistadores, particularly in the Caribbean. It's, it's doubtful whether this report was really entirely accurate. It's probably massively exaggerated. And... Uh, Las Casas sort of makes the rhetorical maneuver of attributing all of these mass deaths of Americans to violence by the, by the Spanish, right, rather than disease, which was really the biggest killer. It was most, most of these, you know, hundreds of thousands of people were dying in droves from disease. Nobody, you know, the, the, these Spanish with these sort of, you know, muskets and, and swords had no ability to kill hundreds of thousands of people at a time. That was just not militarily possible. But, uh, but they were doing their best. So Las Casas keeps this debate alive, and he pressures the crown to promulgate a set of new laws in 1542, right? So almost you know, so 30 years after the laws of Burgos, the new laws are proclaimed. So this is after... The Spanish have now conquered the Aztecs and the Incas and actually have a really significant empire stretching through most of the Americas and have millions uh, of, of indigenous people under their control. So the new laws put a sunset on encomiendas. They basically say no one who currently holds an encomienda can pass it on to their heir. Uh, you know, once they die, it expires. And all the indigenous people then will be moved under civil control of the royally appointed government. So the new laws, in, in, in effect, put a, an expiration date on the entire encomienda system. Well, naturally, the encomenderos, who have gotten rich off of using indigenous labor in mines and on plantations, are outraged. Many of them rebel. And particularly, a large rebellion breaks out in Peru, and the encomenderos attack and kill the viceroy in 1546. So the death of the viceroy Blasco Núñez Vela in 1546 sort of sends a message to the crown, again, that uh, if they really try to rein in their own colonizers, their own subjects, in the overseas empire, they're going to face intense and violent opposition. This only further, you know, raises the stakes. But Las Casas and his allies don't give up, and the king agrees to hold a debate at Valladolid, a university town in Spain, in 1550, where basically Las Casas, on the one hand, will debate against uh, an opposing scholar, Sepulveda, 
And the question at issue would not just be encomiendas and control of labor. It would be whether or not the Spanish crown has any right to claim any sort of territory or rule in the Americas at all. Right. And at this point, Las Casas has been radicalized into the the position that all the conquests in the Americas are illegitimate, that the Spanish should in some way withdraw and should try to missionize and convert the the indigenous Americans, but had no power to rule over them. Uh, Sepulveda, uh, on the other side, argued that the Americans were natural slaves, that they were inherently less intelligent, that they did not have any legitimate right to rule themselves. And the debate was left inconclusive. Reportedly, the king was sympathetic to Las Casas' argument and wanted to basically issue new decrees, basically removing Spanish rule from most of their territory in the Americas, or at least drastically reforming it. But he was afraid of further rebellions, rebellions in the Americas, and possibly rebellion within his own court in Spain, you know, saying, what are you doing? You can't give up (laughs) the biggest conquests we've ever had. So basically, the king makes no ruling and no decision. And instead, the new laws of 1542 remain in place. So these conquests in the Americas, uh, you know, the, the, the new laws and the, the death of the viceroy and the debate at Valladolid, all of these things help to illustrate the overwhelming fact that that Spain did not benefit from their conquests in the Americas nearly as much as you would think that they should. Okay, A lot of the, the wealth and power actually went to these local kind of warlord and comenderos. It was extremely hard for Spain to exercise any control over what went on in most of the empire. It was very hard for them to extract wealth or taxes of any kind and get it back to Spain. It was really a complicated and expensive project. The main benefit that the empire did get was in the form of gold and silver, especially silver. So the Incans had always mined significant amounts of gold and silver in the Andes. And not long after the conquest of Peru, Uh, adventurers were able to locate an enormous deposit of silver in the mountain of Potosí in the Andes in what's now Bolivia. And uh, Potosí, you know, it's it's, it's a large mountain that is almost entirely filled with silver. And once the Spanish were able to tap into it and set up the right camps and the right equipment to mine it, uh, Potosí quickly became the biggest source of silver the world had ever seen. They moved uh, thousands upon thousands of indigenous and also African laborers into a new city to mine uh, gold and silver. Tremendous profits were made, and the crown basically followed the traditional Iberian policy of claiming one-fifth of the newly extracted wealth for the crown. Okay, just, just as the Portuguese crown had said one-fifth of the profits of overseas trade goes to Dom Enrique, likewise, the, the Spanish crown claimed one-fifth of the gold and silver that came out of Potosí. This, over time, was streamlined into collection points along the coast of South America, where it would then be loaded onto a 
once yearly treasure fleet to convoy across the ocean to Spain. And as I said, this made Spain a fabulously wealthy kingdom. It fueled uh, the enormous, extravagant royal courts of the Habsburgs. It launched Spain into primacy in Europe, but the benefits really couldn't last. You know, as I said before, eventually the value of silver, you know, diminishes and uh, the, the actual benefit, the net benefit that the Spanish crown is able to get from these treasure fleets, you know, dissipates and other powers are able to, to overtake them. So that is the basic outline of the story of how Portugal and then Spain were able to become the first overseas imperial powers launched from the European continent. It was an unexpected development. It happened because of strange ideas, strange risks taken, and a lot of strategic subterfuge, a lot of treachery, and a lot of lucky breaks that ended up paving the way for the rise of these two empires. So thank you so much for listening. Again, uh, if you have questions or topics you want to hear about, email me at historiansplaining at gmail.com or comment. Uh, I am interested in what you are interested in, and I'll probably be posting soon uh, a little comment about the progress the podcast has been making and the the listeners and audience that it's gained. And if you can contribute in any way, I have 19 patrons as of right now. Step forward and become the 20th. Go to my Patreon page. The link is in the description. Thank you.